Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain with your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. Episode 57, Counter Stories. Welcome to the podcast in which we, in the words of Walter Benjamin, regard it as our task to brush history against the grain. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Weiner, and with me as always is my co-host, Chris Paget. Happy summer, Chris. Hot fun in the summertime, Joshua. Thank you so much. And I know it's been uh, particularly hot uh, up in your uh, part of the state, the Central Valley, hasn't it? You guys have been, uh, what, you've been hot on those triple digit temperatures for a good week yeah, or two Yeah, it's now. been brutal. Brutal. Uh, I've never gotten used to hot temperatures and I never will. I'm a, I'm a coastal boy and uh, mm-hmm. I need those 68 degree days. That's the only way I can function. I know that, and I've been concerned about you. Uh, although you did mention <laughs> last week that you got yourself uh, out early in the morning, didn't you? Before the the hottest of the hot temperatures descended, uh, yep. and uh, cool, cooled yourself off with a little adventure. You want to tell us about that? Yeah. So for my birthday, my my wife got me a, a little like guided fishing trip on the local the lake around here. Uh, so me and my middle son woke up at 4.30, uh, drove out to Ooh. the lake, and then spent like five hours on a boat fishing, which was like the most normal thing I've ever done. Uh, almost embarrassingly <laughs> normal. And uh, <laughs> what was so funny is that we talked, I don't know, if, I think it was before I went actually, and at basically the same time I was going to be going fishing, you were going to be doing something very different, which which uh, <laughs> just serves a nice little dichotomy in where our lives are going at this at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> Tell the audience yeah, what yeah, you did. It, it, it is. Uh, it follows the uh, the sun centered theme of our chit chat here, mm-hmm. though, uh, because it occurred on the day of the summer solstice, uh, which was also not surprisingly uh, expected to be even down here in the South Bay area, uh, up in the high nineties, uh, even um, cresting over a hundred degrees that day. Uh, so we were looking for escapes as well, uh, and we came upon a uh, what was advertised by a friend as a sound bath experience uh, mm-hmm. held at, uh, on a Santa Cruz beach on the longest day of the year, the solstice day, that promised to uh, to return people to their uh, you know their their karmic center, if you will, by laying on the right. beach. While the uh, the sound bath uh, person who uses a series of crystal bowls uh, and a, a special wand uh, to create vibratory sounds from those bowls uh, kind of cleansed us, you might say, of all that uh, all that spiritual detritus that we've uh, gained by living in a contemporary society. So yeah, so there I was laying on a beach. In the evening, 
uh, with, uh, by the way, Santa Cruz, you'll appreciate this, having gone to college in Santa Cruz. Uh, as we first came over uh, the mountain, Santa Cruz Mountains, it was still nearly 100 degrees in Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. But by the time we were well into our sound bath, uh, I can say that there was a nice, cool uh, coastal breeze and the temperature had uh, gone back into the low 70s. So, yeah, at one end of the day, I was at a sound bath. The other earlier end of the day, you were uh, on a fishing trip. Right. And I th if there's a Venn diagram between fishing and sound sound bathing, I don't I think it's just two, it's just two separate circles. Right. There's no connecting. <laughs> there's no connecting point between those two things. Well, I was going to say the pleasurable hum of the outboard yeah. motor of your fishing boat. Right, there you go. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, maybe. Mimicked the vibration of the universe. Uh, I don't I don't know. We'll have to think more about the possible connections there. But I did see the pictures uh, that you provided. And uh, I think you're being altogether too modest here, Josh. I don't I don't know your your history as a fisherman. I assumed you hadn't done a lot of it, at least since living uh, where you do now in Folsom. But hey, listen, you guys caught a couple of whoppers now didn't you yeah the first um, that was funny because we were on the boat for like two hours we started at six and we hadn't even caught anything uh and the the guide himself was like at one point just goes well this is boring <laughs> like, you know, okay maybe not the best way to sell this but then uh my son you know so the lines are all just set out you're just kind of sitting there and, and waiting for something to to catch and these the line starts moving and my son got the first crack at it and he reeled in like a See my fishing lingo. He reeled in. I think it was like an over six pound <laughs> trout, uh, which was the the guy who's fishing that lake countless times. Says the biggest trout he's ever seen in in that lake. Uh, and then I later caught like Ooh. a seven and a half pound salmon, uh, which we we put back in the water because it was uh, deserved more time. I guess I don't know. I don't remember what his reasoning was, but there was an ecological reason for setting setting it free. So we did that. But ended up catching, bringing home three trout. Uh, cooked them up fried them up the other night um, and they were pretty delicious actually. So uh, it, it's, it's a violent experience. I'll have to say like there, there's something, uh, uh, what, yeah, there's it, it just a level of, of uh, blood and, and guts in that process that um, was probably greater than I, than I was thinking when we, we set out to the extent that when I finally did cook the fish, my son was like, I don't think I want to eat this uh, because he, it was, it was just too close for him having caught the trout to actually eat the <laughs> trout as well. He, he was not, not particularly enamored of that. Uh, but to get back to the, to the history element of this podcast, I had this experience. Let, on the let me, let well. me just, can I yeah, just yeah. quickly interject that the sure. sound bath experience was entirely bloodless <laughs> without any loss of so, life. Yeah. Yeah. But, but not unlike most, by, time, most uh, times, <laughs> not followed by a delicious dinner either. So no, right, right, right. Um, what I was going to say is that uh, I had this experience. You probably had this, and I think maybe most historians have had this, where you know, as you're making small talk, uh, the guy had asked me what I did, and I said I'm a historian. But as soon as I said that, I'm like, God, please don't make me talk about history because this is <laughs> there's no guarantee that's going to be a good conversation, and in fact, it's pretty likely that's going to be a bad conversation uh, with with most people out in the world. Um, you know, and he said he watched a lot of the history channel, which is also kind of a red flag. Um, so it's, it's just this, this weird thing of being an historian, being a, uh, you know, an instructor whose job is to teach lots and lots of people about history, 
but also cringing at the idea of having to talk to just a random person on the street about history because of what that could portend for the rest of the conversation. Uh, so I, I, I tread lightly on the historical subject, I'll just say, because I knew I was going to have to be on the boat for another five hours with this guy, who was very, very nice, by the way. Uh, but there still is that kind of uh, shell shock that comes from having weird historical conversations too many times and wanting to avoid it at all costs. Well, I'm glad to know then of the two experiences, my sound bath summer solstice in Santa Cruz was really the much more conventional experience uh, (laughs) when compared to your uh, adventure uh, on the lake. Uh, But uh, kudos to you and Milo for going out because uh, you guys, uh, you know, you took care of business. I mightily impressed. Uh, with the photographs that that you sent me, post them on the website, right? I think you have a new, uh, yeah, you have a new front page for the History Against the Grain uh, website, no doubt. Well, look, if it seems like we're, you know, maybe uh, indulging a little too much in these more lighthearted <laughs> escapades, uh, I think our listeners will understand. Uh, why a little escapism, you know, isn't such a bad thing right now, considering the uh, veritable, uh, what, uh, Gotterdammerung uh, that has been uh, <laughs> contemporary news for the last few yes. weeks. Oh, my God. I mean, just time, I, you know, when we used to record weekly, uh, sometimes there'd be stuff to talk about and sometimes, you know, like contemporary or uh, you know, stuff going on that we could talk about sometimes not. Um, but now that we're recording monthly, it's like the stuff just piles up to such an extent. And as you start looking through it, you're like, is it's hard and hard, harder and harder to find, you know, some positive stories you can talk about. It's just a, a plethora of horrific things, including, you know, last time we, we talked, we were talking about one massacre. And since then there's been another, um, you know, bout of mass violence. And now uh, more recently, we have the recent Supreme Court decisions, which, um, you know, are fundamentally reshaping uh, the rights of, of Americans in a way that is depressing um, and unfortunately um, predictable, given the, the makeup of, of the Supreme Court. Yeah, not to mention the, the ongoing cataclysm of Russia's war in Ukraine. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, who who would have thought we'd ever be nostalgic for the simpler times when only a global pandemic, you know, <laughs> sat sat before us? But uh, oh, and by the way, the pandemic, you know, continues. Uh, Still going, yeah. Well, it all had me thinking, Josh. You know, uh, as I was uh, doom scrolling, you know, the the news recently, uh, and this ties in with my uh, new agey experience in in Santa Cruz, naturally. Uh, you know, familiar with the idea in astrology of Mercury in retrograde and, and you know, c- committed astrologers will always say that if, you know, during that celestial, you know, that celestial uh, alignment, when Mercury, uh, as they say, is in retrograde, that you can expect things to break. Right. You know, the yeah. mechanical things in particular, it's when, you know, your your car battery goes dead or your, you know, your laptop uh, crashes or whatever. People say, yep, that's you know, that's Mercury in retrograde. In other words, that's the astrological, uh, you know, influence of that particular celestial alignment. 
well, I had I had a ready analogy then to try and get my mind around these these current events, particularly with the announcement. And we knew we knew it was coming because the draft memo uh, or decision had been leaked, you know, a bit earlier mm-hmm. in the year of Samuel Alito's uh, overturning the uh, the famous Roe v. Wade decision uh, that guaranteed a, a woman's right to uh, uh, an abortion, access to abortion. Uh, we knew it was coming. We knew they had set out to to overturn Roe. You know, but when it happened, it nevertheless left me with a kind of you know, uh, you, you you said shell shock earlier. You know, yeah. I, I think you know as a kind of you know descriptor, I guess, of of how I was feeling. But you know what what came to me then was that we are living history in retrograde. Uh, mm-hmm. That is borrowing from the astrological. Uh, notion uh history and retrograde when everything seems to be breaking but more more specifically history and retrograde meaning that in some fundamental sense that optimistic idea that liberal notion of historical progress that we've often talked about you know on uh, history against the grain that teleological arc of progress that uh, one has long you know understood to be moving you know, in the right direction, according to that kind of liberal historical paradigm that that, uh, you know, if nothing else, we say, well, apparently history is in retrograde because most of the problems we're seeing, including the abortion decision, uh, are depressingly familiar you know, to those of us who make it our business to understand what has actually happened in the past. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think there's that that tendency to see when things like this happen, you know, when January 6th happened, when, you know, a variety of perfect things in the last number of years have happened. There's that that idea that these are aberrational, right? Like this, you know, the old, this is not who we are kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But instead of seeing a lot of these things as, aber- as aberrations, I think we maybe should see them as culminations of, you know, the structure of the world that's was created over the past 500 years, right? That history you know, kind of shows us, and we've we've talked so much about this across so many episodes, just the, the, the structures, the power, uh, you know, systems of power, um, systems of control, systems of, um, of domination, which developed over the past 500 years, you know, create a world in which these things can happen. Not, you know, that these things happen aberrationally, but that this is what we should expect from time to time, given the system we, we live in, this late capitalist uh, you know, post-imperial or whatever we want to call it, uh, uh, world system. This is just this is just the reality, right? There's no guarantee that things get better and better. Um, there are going to be, you know, these these uh, things that happen without particular direction. Um, and uh, you know, the, the the kind of liberal notion of of evolutionary history just leaves us vitally unprepared to deal with this kind of stuff because it shouldn't happen according to the stories we've been told. But the reality is, no, this is what we should expect to happen given the nature of, of, of our system. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, today's episode is called counter stories because one of the things we're going to suggest is that as long as we tell ourselves those conventional traditional stories uh, stories that conform to this notion of, you know, uh, uh, kind of a, a you know progress of 
uh, unaided progress in history. The history itself, in other words, is inherently progressive in the modern age. As long as we tell those stories, we're going to be hard pressed to have even the vocabulary to address the actual conditions of our world, conditions which spring from the very systems, as you mentioned, uh, and have really little hope, I think, of framing our world in a way that might allow for, you know, genuinely pr progressive resolution to our problems, you know, and, and so, let me give you an example of what I'm thinking about here. And then, you know, you can chime in. It's, you know, with the, with the Alito, Samuel Alito, Justice Samuel Alito, uh, mm -hmm. who's, you know, the, the primary author of the majority decision overturning Roe v. Wade, um, you know, is, is making an argument. He's making an explicit appeal to history to justify the decision, the majority decision of the court. Right. Uh, I think John Roberts tried to provide a concurrent uh, majority decision that tempered some of what Alito was doing. But basically, what the what the supermajority, as they call it on the court now, six out of the nine members uh, are are saying uh, under the aegis of Alito's uh, pen, judicial pen, is that you know that the, there are certain rights that are in deeply embedded. In American history, but that uh, that that whether or not the Constitution expressly recognizes them by name, are understood to be covered by some kind of constitutional sanction. Abortion, he says, is not one of those. Mm. Uh, all right. Well, I think you know, uh, as as a historian, you know, he Samuel Alito is is treading on exceptionally thin ground here. <laughs> on almost every count. But rather than offering a kind of point by point, you know, kind of a historical refutation, um, you know, it's almost easier for me to say, yeah, you know, that's a kind of cover. It's a kind of legitimizing thing to do, say history is on your side. You know, it, it gives you what, Josh? It gives you the sense that you're really a conservative after all, and you're not doing anything radical here, that you're really returning something back to its rightful Place well, okay. In historical terms, I think that's, you know, it's 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 got enough, um, you know, got enough wrong with it uh, that that we could do that if we wanted to. But that's not what I want to say. I want to say something much more simply about that arc of history thing. Is that, mm -hmm. um, I mean, in a way, Alito's right. It's just that he's not quite coming clean because, in a way, what he's saying is. There was long a kind of patriarchal mandate to control the lives of women, including the reproductive capacities of women, that that fell under the rubric of patriarchy, in other words. Well, OK, that's easy enough to understand. I think it's I think it's basically true. You know, uh, in other words, it's easy enough to show a kind of inherently conservative view of gender relationships and patriarchy in all these decisions. Uh, and, and and then connect that to what has been a traditional sort of patriarchal understanding of power and, and the managing of relations between men and women and families and social relations and whatnot, uh, right on down to women, you know, as laborers and workers and, you know, these kinds of things all fall under, fall under the rubric of patriarchy. That's not 
in dispute here. But what I think is in dispute for me, at least, and you can speak to your own you know, sense of this, is that if you believe the liberal progressive notion of history, that, that freedom is a kind of expansive phenomenon, right? That is from the time of the American Revolution to our own time. And that some of those notions, say, of patriarchy, like, well, for example, slavery, uh, were eventually right. resolved and enslaved people were become, had become free. That you would also see that in a sort of analogous way, the rights of women under patriarchy were eventually broadened and expanded, you know, most famously, what, the right of women to vote, you know, mm -hmm. uh, eventually to the right of, of, of abortion. And so in that liberal, that teleological liberal progressive idea that history is going in a certain direction, and it's an upward arc with an expanse of freedom, you would think, well, then you can't take, you can't close uh, the, um, you know, the aperture. In other words, you, you have a wide angle for more freedom. You can't suddenly restrict it. You can't change the picture so that now women have fewer rights, can you? Because that would be a violation. Uh, that would seem to be history in retrograde. In other words, that would be a violation of that expansive liberal progressive notion of history. But what I want to say then specifically is that we, we you know, we're sold a bill of goods with that one because even the liberal progressive notion of American history is still built around a fundamentally conservative and patriarchal understanding of the past, which is to say those rights that we celebrate seemingly in that narrative were all somehow bequeathed to us by a kind of patriarchal dispensation. In other words, those we call the founding fathers at the time of the American Revolution, the writing of the Constitution, who were exclusively whom? White, male, property, political elites, many of them enslavers, right? Are the men who created these rights and who supposedly set in motion this liberal progressive history. Now, you would think that that would represent an obvious conundrum, right? An obvious paradox or contradiction, except that, as we've talked about this before, Josh, you know, the kind of bewildering properties of a narrative, a very interesting thing was done in the, in the story of the nation. It was made to seem that even for those who were slave owners, you know, the Thomas Jeffersons, the George Washingtons, that they were really proto-abolitionists. They, they were men mm -hmm. who were, you know, products of their own day. Yes, they were born into a system that accepted slavery, but they set in motion the wheels of a revolution that would ultimately lead to what? The abolition of slavery. And that they themselves, as men of the Enlightenment, fully understood the kind of humanitarian impulse and that one day slavery would be abolished. And thus it is to those patriarchal figures, those founding fathers, and I, I think you have to pay attention to what we call things, right? Founding fathers, right. like the, you know, the tribes of Israel or something, these are the patriarchs <laughs> who set it all in motion, that it's to them we then owe credit. But my point is that something like these retrograde decisions, historically retrograde decisions, 
are themselves not aberrations then of some otherwise liberal progressive story. They are built in the very idea of patriarchal endowment in the first place. And Samuel Alito was simply exercising that kind of patriarchal prerogative that becomes the kind of font then of a worshipful notion of the American past where we owe all our blessings then to wise patriarchs. In other words, for me, it's not such a stretch once you've accept that basic premise to then turn the dial slightly and to see a more repressive form of patriarchy because isn't, after all, ultimately patriarchy inherently repressive? Yeah. And I, I mean, there's a couple of things that, that kind of running through my head right now. One is something we talked about, uh, you know, off mic a little bit, but I've been thinking about this, this kind of metaphor uh, for history that people see it kind of in the way uh, video games worked when I was a, when I was a kid, where most video games were kind of these left to right scrolling stories, you know, Super Mario Brothers kind of style, uh, in which you go through the level, you progress, you know, again from the left side of the screen to the right side of the screen, you meet these challenges, you overcome those challenges, and then maybe there's a big fight at the end of the, the level, at which point you move on to the next level, and the thing you had just done, the challenge you had just overcome, become something that's now achieved, right? You achieved this progress, but that view of of history that you know like a video game in which you you know fight against these challenges overcome them and then move on is not actually the way history works there is no directionality there is no kind of levels you reach at which point you don't have to face those challenges again that that ultimately the the, the problems of the past the problems of, of societies can always you know resurface can always reemerge. there always is that potential as you said for that kind of retrograde motion um which is going to bubble these things up once again. Well, yeah, I'm not going to argue against that. Um, you know, I guess I'm thinking of contextualizing American patriarchy. Right. That is to say, in the context of the story we tell ourselves as a nation about a you know, kind of liberal, progressive, expansive story of freedom is, is more than a little ironic when American patriarchy, that is 18th century, 17th yeah. and 18th century, uh, American patriot that is embedded in the laws, the political traditions, uh, and most importantly, for my money, in a, you know, systematic enslavement, you know, of uh, African people, that when you start from that particular module, you know, of, of patriarchy, historical, you know, patriarchy, it's going to be uh, difficult to create, uh, you know, a story, expansive story of freedom, you know, when, when that system of power embedded in law, embedded in politics, embedded in enslavement is so central to the actual turning of the historical wheel, say in the American Revolution, the writing of the Constitution, you know, um, and, and all sort of subsequent, you know, the, the Civil War, you know, the rise of industrial capitalism, um, that there is an inherently, what would you call it, Josh, you know, inherently conservative assumption mm -hmm. there that it's from these fathers that the rights we enjoy were bequeathed as what is a kind of gift, you know, yes. to the body politic of the United States. And so, 
you know, I mean, my point is until we dis disabuse ourselves of that story form, you know, and quit telling stories about founding fathers, which I've spent a fair amount of time over the course of our <laughs> podcast, you know, trying to deconstruct, um, that until we do that, until we free ourselves from that story form, we're going to keep finding these retrograde moments of history that seem to be driven by the inherently conservative understanding of power, who gets it, who wields it, you know, uh, and on whom, right? Be it women, yes. be it immigrant people, be it poor people, be it the unhoused. You know, here in California, the Senate is trying to deal with a cataclysmic problem of homelessness, you know, by passing something called a, a care court, will give uh, certain public servants, one imagines maybe police, maybe paramedics, maybe social workers, you know, a kind of, um, you know, policing power to take homeless people off the street and put, if they're suffering what seems to be a demonstrable mental health crisis, and to put them into something called a care court, where they would be then subject to certain rehabilitative treatments, um, one imagines to resolve their mental health care crisis. But you and I were talking before we say, just think of the language there, court, a court, mm -hmm. a court is an instrument of enforcement, uh, sovereign enforcement, you know, the power of a governing, you know, a governing power, right? That traditionally has been what? Served by men in the role of judges. I mean, I, I, yeah. I just couldn't help but be struck by the way it almost seems our vocabulary is limited in understanding the scope of these problems. It, it could be just as easy to say, oh, this is really a problem inherent to capitalism itself, late stage capitalism, you know, homelessness, uh, the lack of affordable uh, properties, you know, the lack of affordable, you know, health uh, treatments, et cetera. That that's in, in itself a problem of capitalism, but that's not, how, that's not how it gets framed in the legislative body of California. It gets framed as an enforcement provision of a something called a care court. Yeah, it's insane. Well, I mean, the, the, the issue is that the, the problems that actually exist, the ultimate problems are, as you said, these problems of, of late capitalism. But, you know, any legislature is not going to, you know, pass a law that, you know, legislates against late capitalism. So what they have to deal with instead is the proximate problems, which are, you know, things like rampant homelessness, the fact that there's tent cities outside, you know, all of our major cities, every, you know, freeway off ramp, um, you're, you're seeing these things. But, uh, you know, they can't just say the system is fucked. We <laughs> got to start over and, and fix this thing. They got to say, uh -huh. let's, you know, let's create another institution, another court, another group of, of you know, uh, bureaucrats to then solve this very proximate issue of, 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 of homelessness. In a, in a way that ultimately uh, places greater supervisory power in the hands of of, of the government, um, which uh, I mean, it's almost like they should call this the Foucault provision or something like that, because it, it reads like something right out of Discipline and Punisher or, or one of his one of his many books. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and nor I like your point, because nor is any. Well, some people are saying, but it's meeting cold response, nor is anyone saying, hey, we should abolish the Supreme Court. Never mind mm -hmm. the care courts in California. How about the Supreme Court that just they're saying we should effect, expand it? Yeah, or maybe expand it, but nobody is saying uh, maybe the court itself represents a kind of patriarchal 
a vestige, you know, of that is a vestigial yeah. organ of, of, of patriarchy. Because even though, what, three of the nine members of the court are currently female, at least one of them, the one who voted uh, with the Alito majority, comes from a Roman Catholic church background that is itself steeped in patriarchy uh, and, uh, you know, seems to be sort of doggedly faithful to it. Uh, that is, I'm talking about Amy Coney Barrett, whose own, you know, deep and submersive involvement in a particularly conservative strand of Roman Catholicism. So so it's not even enough to say, well, put some women on the court when the institution itself, we're talking about an institution that is responsive to really no electoral majorities. I mean, it's with a certain irony, mm -hmm. right, that uh, a number of those justices that voted in the majority in this case were appointed by presidents who had not won a yep. political majority. Yeah. Uh, that is to say, George W. Bush or uh, Donald Trump, neither of whom won a mm -hmm. political, that is a numerical majority, and uh, they won electoral. Uh, well, in the case of, of Trump, in the case of, of Bush, that was Bush v. Gore. Even that was uncertain if he'd even won the electoral college. But in other words, so these folks have appointed these very conservative justices. They're beyond the reach of what we might call popular majorities. They serve for life with a kind of dictum that I can only describe as being vested in a certain patriarchal sense of what a kind of patriarchal wisdom or something. That, that we should right. entrust these few individuals with such momentous matters of public policy, civil rights, you name it. And so, uh, yeah, the, the, you know, the, uh, the problem is the system. It's, it's, it's yeah. the narrative about the system that tells us that the system is something different than what it is. And because it's, and then I'll final thing I'll say about this, before we go to your segment, is that, you know, the the, the, la the lingering patriarchal obeisance that we have to the system and the story about the system is such that when you, when, look, whether you call for the abolition of the Supreme Court or for the abolition of, of, of capitalism or the abolition of the national narrative, which in our very first mm -hmm. episode I called for, you're not just guilty of a divergent political view. You're guilty of what? Dishonoring the fathers, Josh. You're yeah. guilty of violating the patriarchal imperative. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just add one more thing, which is that, you know, a, a big basis of the, you know, one of the main conceits I would argue of, of post-enlightenment nations is the idea that these are systems based around, you know, kind of rational inquiry or, you know, use the use of reason uh, for public affairs, all this kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, and, and that view ultimately helps legitimize and justify all sorts of horrific things that these nations end up doing in some ways. But one of the things we're seeing, you know, as, as a result of these, these recent decisions, I've read a number of things where, where, you know, various writers are like, you know, the, the conservatives in the court may have won, but at the cost, the legitimacy of, of, of the court. And, you know, part of what they're saying there, I think, is that prior to this, uh, you know, these justices and these decisions were at least framed around the notion that there was some kind of rational inquiry going on. And what's so galling to people now is that, uh, that you know, these decisions are completely incoherent. You know, the, the, you know one day they're saying it's uh, the states can't regulate, you know, uh, uh, gun control. And the next day they're saying uh, 
you know, that states should have the right to regulate abortions and all, all this kind of stuff, that there's very, very little even attempt to make these things make sense any longer, um, which is kind of revealing the system as it always had been, right? That, But we just now have people who are basically unconcerned with trying to make sense any longer. Um, and, and that's what's so frustrating to observers is that um, we used to at least pretend like there was something behind this. And now we reach a point where that that pretending, the bewildering, as we've, we've said, is almost disappeared. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of naked um, in front of us, the actual exercise of power, um, which uh, I think is, 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 is a shocking vision for, for a lot of people to see. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's sort of naked power. Right. You know, flexing right. its, uh, you know, its its uh, its muscles. But I, I you know, I, I did note, though, that that even Alito, you know, made this appeal to history. Right. And so, right. look, folks here on History Against the Grain, you know, we've been arguing all along that if we're going to find a path forward, you know, to resolve to 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 fully resolve these problems, you know, our, of our historical inheritance, that, you know, one of the things we have to do, in, in addition to something like, you know, radical change in public policy, maybe reconfiguration of government processes, uh, fundamental reform to, you know, capitalist systems, is we got to tell ourselves better stories, don't we, Josh? We have to change the narrative so that we aren't constantly bewildered and surprised and shocked mm-hmm. by what we consider to be what the rude reappearance of problems we imagined were solved long ago. We don't need the same old stories. We need better and truer counter stories. Okay, so I'm really quite excited uh, here to uh, to introduce the project now that my partner is working on. Uh, it seems, uh, Josh, you couldn't leave well enough alone because when the invitation went out for interested parties to take part in the writing of an open source world history textbook that is part of an initiative here in California to provide free uh, open source uh, materials to students, college students, uh, including textbooks, uh, that you had a notion, I believe, my friend, that you might have something not only to contribute toward the writing of a world history textbook, but as uh, our our listeners will undoubtedly not be shocked to learn, that you also wanted to bring to that uh, endeavor, you know, something of the... Uh, you know, the, the thrust of a counter story, as we're calling it in today's episode, that is to uh, try and remove the veil of innocence from the typical standard textbook narratives that keep folks um, essentially enthralled to the same old story over time. And, uh, and so I can't wait now to hear you talk about it uh, for our, uh, our listeners. How's that all going? It stressed me out, to be honest. Uh, you know, when uh, when the email went out, you know, asking for contributors, I think I, I responded so quickly that the, the the lead was a little shocked by it, um, maybe a little scared how quickly I got back. To it. But uh, 
Yeah, so so it's a really cool project, as you said. It's it's uh, called OER, Open Educational Resources, and it's it's a way of addressing these issues of equity. Because while our students at this point are largely um, getting free college, at least in the California community college system, there still is this huge barrier of of the cost of of textbooks. So there's been this effort, not just in California but many states, to create more and more uh, free resources. And the state of California didn't have such a resource. Um, you know, there were other world history textbooks created in other places. Um, and so there was a grant that uh, would provide some money to create this textbook. And I'm going to be one of the contributors to it. Um, but the, the, the argument, you know, the grant is based around the idea of producing a world history textbook focused on anti-racism, equity, and social justice, uh, which, you know, was on the one hand, really attractive because absolutely all that that's needed, but also then raises question, what does that actually mean? Right? Because we get bombarded if you're in any kind of educational institution with, you know, those terms and, and others like it, which are often understood in very institutional ways. Um, you know, that, that equity has a very particular meaning and anti-racism has a very particular in institutional meaning and, and the like. In history, I think part of the challenge is that you know, when we talk about equity and anti-racism, often it just means like talking about non-white people, right? Just including them in the stories. Um, and as we've talked about, that's really not sufficient, um, you know, in the context of the U.S. narrative, you know, telling more Native stories in that narrative just basically, um, you know, turns Natives into participants in somebody else's history, right? So right away, part of my idea is what I, we can't just do that, right? We can't just tell stories involving people that whose stories didn't really get told. We also need to tell a counter story. We need to reframe the narrative. We need to take out a lot of the assumptions, um, the kind of normative ideas that have structured so much of the way we, we've seen the past. Um, so it all sounds great, but, um, you know, it's been a, it's been a, I will say a very difficult, project for me just to focus and try to tell these these stories in different ways um also i will say part of the problem is I, I start writing stuff and i go oh this would be good for the podcast but not necessarily good for you know introductory history students and so i think i sent you like three maybe 600 word you know paragraphs and then ended each one by saying i probably can't use this in the textbook <laughs> Well, you know, based on everything that you've sent me, Josh, uh, those little uh, sort of mental memos that you're making as you go through, yes. which as your therapist, I can say represent your true intentions coming to the surface. Uh, right. I think that is the thing that, that we write before the editing happens, you know. I think, uh, my and my response has been, this is great. <laughs> Leave it in. This is exactly the sort of, uh, you know, uh, peek behind the curtain, if you will, of historical textbook writing that we need to, uh, you know, include our students in, right? In other words, uh, as opposed to that sort of manna from heaven version of the textbook with its omniscient narrator that seems to just, you know, echo forth. Uh, here we have a definable author working through specific problems and sharing that process to some extent uh, with uh, his readers. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. And that's that's very nice to hear because again, like this is this is something I haven't really done before. And so let me I want to talk a little bit about the what the stuff I've been working on and just the kind of intentionality that I'm trying to get across in the sense that, you know, like you said, we don't want this to just be, or I don't want this to just be, you know, another version of here are the historical facts, ingest those facts, and then at some later point, uh I was trying to think of a, a term that wasn't as gross as vomit those facts out, but, but, you know, give those <laughs> facts out in the, at the appropriate time and the appropriate method of multiple choice or essay or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that means that um, on the one hand, I, you know, you obviously still need to be historical. You still need to be grounded in the history that you're, you're talking about. But as I said, I want to be intentional about letting students into letting readers into the kind of process of historical thinking, you know, as, as it goes on. So they understand through the way that the material is presented that, you know, this is, um, this is, this is an act of interpretation. It's an act of choice. It's an act of creation essentially when we, when we do this kind of history. And so, you know, in, in the vein of this idea of counter stories, one of the things we've talked about a lot is, is this issue where, you know, we'll come into a class all fired up to, you know, to, to break down students assumptions about some historical moment or event. And then you realize, They've never even ingested, at least explicitly or, or consciously, those assumptions in the first place. Um, mm -hmm. So part of what I want to do is kind of talk about, you know, the, the way the history has been presented so that the counter story I'm telling then becomes clear to them. Right. So they can see, oh, this mm -hmm. is way, the way it was presented. And here are some of the issues with how it's presented. So I want to do a few examples of that as we go forward here. And the chapter I'm writing um, is basically dealing with early modern globalization it's chapter one uh, in the textbook. The stuff I've been writing about is largely so far about the big um, kind of Turco-Islamic empires that emerge, uh, you know, from the earliest with the Ottoman Empire in like the 14th century, and then go into uh, the Mughal Empire emerging in the early 16th century, as well as the Safavid Empire. And so all these are empires that, you know, have this connection to, to like the steppe tradition. Um, they, at points, the, the, the communities that created the empire at some point converted to Islam. And so they provide all these interesting examples of, you know, the way that, uh, that, you know, kind of syncretism works, how they adopt different things and place them up, uh, on top of older traditions. Um, but also what these empires give us a chance to do is really try to break down some of, you know, kind of the, the, the assumptions that even in our more enlightened age of history, still come through so much in a lot of history. So I want to give a few examples of that. The first thing I want to talk about is, is kind of the continued, we'll call it teleology of the nation. Um, you know, we've talked in the past about the way that nationalism kind of distorts so much of the way we think of the past as well as our present times as well. Obviously, that's a huge part of your own project in trying to dismantle the U.S. history survey. Um, but this is this is a big problem in thinking about the early modern period, and in many ways even more so outside of Europe. Um, you know, in Europe it's problematic when France is treated as like an eternal object of study, right? That France was France in Neanderthal times or something like that. But um, <laughs> but it, in some ways it's even more problematic with these large multi ethnic ethnic empires in other parts of the world. So. You know, there's kind of three versions of, of this, the way that nationalism, you know, rears its head and distorts these histories. Um, eventually, I'm going to talk about China. I'm going to talk about some other empires as well. But 
the one version of this is when these histories uh, are presented unproblematically as nascent nations. So the, the big, best, best example of that is China. Uh, you know, so China, the eternal nation, the Han Chinese, an ancient population with an ancient culture, 5,000 years of history, all that kind of uh, stuff we've talked about. And so China's often just presented as this place that just needed to cast off its imperial pretensions and embrace its true national character, um, the eternal Chinese. And, you know, again, even in, in better textbooks, better versions of this, so often, um, you know, China just is, right? We talked about China 5,000 years ago, China 500 years ago, China 100 years ago. And so that's one, one thing we often see. And again, I've talked about this, but I'm trying to be more intentional in classes, and I definitely will be so in the textbook as well. As, at kind of breaking that down a little bit, talking about, you know, the region that eventually would become China or some such phrasing of that sort. Do you think that, do you think the reason for that, Josh, is because we start, we read history backwards, you know, we start with, yeah. say, a nation state and we project backwards to find that nation state in various, whatever, embryonic forms ready, you know, to be incubated and hatched or something. Uh, I mean, I don't know that's necessarily why you see the eternal China that way, but I know it's true with a lot of the Western nation states, you know, right? Yeah. Like the United States, certainly, but even like the modern nation of France, like you say, you know, sort of projecting yeah. backwards some primordial fr Frenchness, you know, like they were sitting around yeah. eating pastries and they, right, right, right. you know, the paleo age or something. Uh, yeah, I was, I was curious. How, yeah. Why? Yeah, why? I, why, no, I think why that's. I, I think that's right, and I think it goes back to that. You know, the kind of progressive or in, evolutionary history is that, you know, the nation is the culmination of all that's happened in the past. Therefore, the past has to explain the coming of the nation, right? So, that's part yeah. of it. I think the other part, particularly outside of Europe, is just the essentialization of, you know, of non-white peoples in general, right? And there's always this this notion. Mm -hmm. I've talked about this in. in previous episodes where, you know, when, when Europeans arrive in a place like India, when they arrive in a place like China, particularly in the modern age, I should say, they always seem to be looking for that kind of skeleton key that will unlock, you know, these people, who they are, this idea that we got to, we got to understand them, quote unquote. Um, and so I, I think that kind of, you know, the, the nascent nation of China is a way of saying, well, these are the Chinese and they have been so in time immemorial. It also, you know, has that um, element of um, presenting that contrast, that kind of Orientalist contrast where, you know, Western nations are, are treated as these progressive, ever-changing, innovative, uh, you know, whatever other term you want to use. Um, and then, and then non-Western countries are always presented as somehow stagnant, um, unrealized, you know, some uh, traditional conservative, all the, all those sorts of things. And th that kind of fits into this idea. Well, that this is just who they are and not just who they are now, but it's always who they have been. Um, and, and so I, I think there's a variety of things going on, but it's, uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty useful, I think in this kind of broader, you know, imperialist nationalist, um, you know, kind of modernist era to, to want to do this sort of thing. And then I will say as well that, you know, Chinese historiography itself um, often presents China in, in pretty essentialized in essentialized ways, meaning the way the Chinese themselves wrote about their history tended to want to present the traditionalism, the conservatism, um, you know, in, in their own 
versions of the account. And that, you know, that kind of fell into Europeans who also wanted to believe in the essentializing things and then creates this, this notion of the Han Chinese as an eternal people, as opposed to a concept that's like invented in, you know, the 1890s or something like that, which is more closer to reality. Yeah. It's a, well, it's a really great point because it, and given our, what we were talking about in segment one, you know, we can see how terrifically destructive it can be too. you know, where uh, say a Vladimir Putin is trying to retrofit yes. some sense of Russian nationalism, you know, on, on, on Ukraine, you know, to the point of, of invading and, and waging a, a kind of uh, destructive war there, you know, uh, yeah. and, and we could say, well, you know, sure, that's a kind of standard cover for, you know, naked aggression or something. But again, it's the story uh, trap we get into, isn't it? It's, it's the story mm -hmm. dead end where if you accept the premise of that sort of enduring Russian identity or enduring Russian state or something, it's hard to argue out of it, you know, you, yes. without, without just, you know, sort of getting yourself into a kind of conundrum, you know, where you end up conceding a bunch of things, you know, to, to the very thing you're trying to argue against, uh, you almost just have to start over with the story, don't you? I, I think that's right. Yeah. And, and again, you know, I've, this goes a little beyond the, the textbook now, but in my Asian history class, I've become much, much, much more, uh, I'll use the term again, intentional about starting the class and saying, you know, we're not going to be talking about China as a thing. We're going to be talking about China as an idea um, that develops in the modern age. And, you know, as best we can, mm -hmm. we'll talk about the history of, you know, a region, maybe. We mm -hmm. want to be very careful mm -hmm. about, you know, not just unproblematically throwing out the idea of the Chinese people uh, without you know, questioning and problematizing that idea, because, um, like you said, it it has such a huge distorting and, and often very uh, nefarious um, effect, particularly in a modern age, defined by these uh, you know intensive nationalisms that we're, we're still obviously dealing with now. Um, so China's one example of that you know maybe the the ur example of of the kind of nascent nation just waiting to to realize its uh, its its destiny. But there's other versions. Um, and so, you know, the Mughal, for instance, represent another trope you'll see, which is the quote unquote foreign invaders, right? The Mughals come from outside and invade uh, a people, the Indian people. Uh, they impose themselves on this pre-existing place called India. And of course, you know, what I will be very uh, clear about in the chapter is to, first of all, just break down that idea of, of India as a thing, as opposed to, as I said, India is an idea, but also, um, and this will get into something else I'll talk about, you know, even the idea of foreignness is in many ways a, a modern concept, right? That requires a set of categories that didn't really exist at the time that the Mughals entered, entered Northern India. So, you know, all these terms have kind of greater meanings, uh, and, and implications than we often, than we often suggest. And, and then the idea of the foreign Mughals invading India, this Islamic conquest of India, you know, very much fits into, um, you know, kind of British imperialist tropes on the one hand. Uh, the British were saving India from these foreign invaders, from exploitation, but also now feeds into, um, you know, radical Hindu nationalism as well. Um, that, you know, what what the modern Indian state is doing essentially is righting the wrongs of that that foreign invasion. So, so that's another version. And then the version I'll, uh, I've been writing about most right now is something like the Ottoman Empire. Uh, where the empire itself is seen as inherently untenable 
because it impeded people's natural desires for nationhood. So the idea of, of the Ottoman Empire, you know, collecting all these, all these nations, whether that's Greeks or Arabs or Kurds or Armenians or, you know, various, uh, various Slavic or Balkan states, uh, you know, is somehow going against nature. And in, in, in the end, you know, the end of the Ottoman Empire is just the realization of the natural state of things where the Greeks live in Greece and the Croats live in Croatia and the Armenians live in Armenia and on and on and on. Um, but that also fundamentally distorts the reality in which those identities are in fact created by the process of imperialism, created by the presence of an empire, created by all these kind of modern uh, elements that simply were not relevant at the time of the Ottoman Empire's creation and, and growth. And again, what that does is it fundamentally warps our understanding of what the Ottoman Empire is. Um, it allows us to kind of shuffle them off to the side, um, you know, kind of away from the real history going on in Europe, uh, where progress and nationhood and identity and, um, and, and autonomy were all being created. And, uh, and, and it, so this is all very problematic. And I think while textbooks have gotten better at acknowledging the imaginary aspects of national identity, uh, the, the, the textbook I use now specifically when it talks about nationalism, talks about imagined communities, the Benedict Anderson uh, you nice. know, kind of idea. Um, but they still too often use the language and assumptions of nationalism um, in, in ways that turn those past societies and peoples into just unrealized versions of ourselves, right? They're just us str struggling to become us in some ways. Uh, and, and again, that's, that's problematic because as, as I've said, it turns the past into something very different um, than, than what it actually was. All right. So nationalism, I think, you know, more broadly speaking, you know, not just in a chapter about these early modern empires, but in any kind of world history textbook, maybe the most important thing is just, you know, removing those distortions of the nation from, from the narrative, because it fundamentally transforms the way we think of the past and it naturalized the present in a way that I don't think is particularly useful as much as possible. We want to make clear to students that the present is the result of so many different contingencies, choices, randomness, uh, um, you know, all sorts of things, but there is no destiny that, that, you know, was always leading to the creation of the United States, the invention of France, the emergence of Arab nationalism, whatever the case may be. And the more we can make that clear, the more we can, you know, to use a grad school term, problematize the present a little bit um, and let, let students kind of see through the kind of myths that are, that are, uh, placed upon upon this history, so that's my first my first. That's, example. Yeah, that's 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 really key. I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, because this is, in some sense, also, you know, our uh, what kind of resurrecting that idea of a usable past. You know, it's right. It's often been sort of dismissed as something inherently manipulative to think that you can find something in the past that speaks directly to your present. You right. know, but uh, I, I think we've gotten past that again, haven't we? In other words, that was that idea of a purely disinterested scholarship writing about some objective past, uh, letting the, you know, the, the chips fall as, as they may or, or something. But uh, I, I don't think that's where we are, is it? I mean, I, I think, as you pointed out, you, you want your students to understand the ways in which a construct like nationalism or the yeah. nation state you know uh you know it asserts its own kind of 
authority over the past, you know, uh, not not right. to mention over our thinking as modern nation state dwelling people today. So uh, yeah, I, I wanted to, to throw in there because I think it's, it's silly to be uh, any longer afraid of that, you know, that shibboleth of the usable past. If, if, if we can't find something useful to inform our understandings of the world in which we live, if we can't find something useful from the past, then what are we doing mucking around in the past? Yeah, you're, you're and again, like I think part of the problem is like the the version you're talking about, where you're just these these kind of objective truth tellers. It history becomes such a passive process, right? It's just this thing that mm -hmm. you're mm -hmm. you're just presenting, and and I think as much as we can we can present to students that history is actually a dynamic process. Um, hopefully, it makes it more engaging than than the old version of again recite facts and then and then provide those those facts on some kind of uh, assessment some sometime later in the semester. All right, so the second thing I, I wanna be, again, very intentional about is breaking down the binaries that are still, I would say this is still a huge problem in the way history is told. And I know that you've been, you've been on this, this track for, for a bit, trying to break down, for instance, the kind of freedom slavery binary in, in American history. But it, you know, in, the, in the chapter I'm writing now, just kind of the binaries I'm thinking about are, are Christian Muslim, um, you know, as kind of a, a set of categories that are easily separated uh muslim hindu in the case of india sunni shia in the case of you know the ottoman empire and then the safid empire these neighboring and competing empires even the idea of secular spiritual um and then i would throw in as well the biggest binary of all which is that east-west binary uh which just in, in the end are not very useful in thinking about human societies and especially in the pre-modern world now i would say in the modern world the, those binaries are still uh not very useful but at the very least in the modern world, we have a set of categories that are much more, you know, well ensconced in our thinking, right? Not good categories in many cases, but a lot of these categories have been established. Those categories didn't simply exist in the same way in the pre-modern world. So let me give you some, some examples. Of course, we wanna always use some history here um, to get at, you know, what I'm trying to do to break down, you know, this version of the story to create a new counter story. I'm gonna try to do a lot of examples where, um, that gets across this idea that Christian Muslim states in Western Asia, Western Eurasia rather, may have been rivals with each other. Uh, but that doesn't mean that Christians and Muslims would have seen themselves as participants in a clash of civilizations, as maybe certain contemporary scholars would have us believe. You know, that, that idea of the clash of civilizations is uh, an idea that goes back to um, Samuel Huntington. Is, am I get that, get that get that right? I believe it was Samuel Huntington who does that. Um, I, I think that book is is not particularly well thought of now, but I, I do think that that binary, that Christian Muslim binary, is still very much alive in the way people think about the past. That is one thing that I think students definitely do bring in this idea that this just you know intractable enemies, um, you know, set up at war with each other uh, from time immemorial, to use the old phrase. But um, so I, I want to give examples that kind of push against that. Um, first of all, individuals almost certainly didn't see themselves in that, in that fashion. Most people, regardless of religious identity, would have thought in terms of, of their own interests, maybe the interests of their families and their communities. Religion was part of who they were, but it was not always the most defining thing. To give an example from the Ottoman Empire, um, Carter Finley, a, a, an historian of, of the Ottoman, has, uh, sorry, of, of uh, just uh, Turkey empires more broadly, has noted that during the early Ottoman expansion, quote, many local Christians appear to have been happy to pass under the rule of an expanded polity 
with relatively light taxes. In other words, he's saying the people cared more about how they were ruled than who it was that ruled them. So, you know, the idea, for instance, we can, you know, get into this more as, as, as I go on, but that the, the, the conquest of Constantinople in 1453, which is, you know, in Western history is this signal event, right? Marking some, you know, world historical <laughs> thing, you know, nobody wants to be conquered, but, but to be clear, prior to 1453, plenty of Christian regions of the old uh, Byzantine empire had been taken by the Ottomans. And in many, many cases, aside from the conquest itself, um, you know, people were perfectly happy to live under an empire that was expansive and dynamic, had light taxes and a fairly light hand over the people they ruled as well. So not as much of a tragedy um, as is sometimes presented in these <laughs> historical sources, which again are trying to present this idea of this clash of civilizations, whether or not they use that mm -hmm. term. You know, the, I think the overemphasis on the fall of Constantinople feeds into that idea of this, you know, eternal war between the two sides. In fact, after the fall of Constantinople, um, in 1453, an anti-Ottoman league would be created. And that league in included states like Venice and Austria, but also the Turkic uh, Akoyunlu um, of, of kind of Eastern, uh, I'm sorry, Western, what's now Western Iran and Eastern Anatolia, the Safavias, who were the, the, the religious order that eventually formed the Safavid uh, empire were also part of this order. And so, you know, the idea that, uh, that Christians and Muslims were at, at war with each other is belied by the fact that what was really happening here is people were terrified of the Ottomans and therefore were willing to form these alliances across religious lines, across these binaries we're told to, that, are, that are so important for the mutual defense of, of their own interests. And, and, you know, I think so much of history that we want to uh, simplify in terms of these binaries often comes down to, well, what do people want? How do they pursue their interest? Um, and, and, and that often is more important than these kind of, uh, you know, broader binary issues. That old East, East West binary, um, is something else that I'm going to try to undermine as much as possible. Um, the, the Western civ tradition in particular has this tendency to assimilate certain figures into its narrative, right? It's almost, it's like kind of grasping, uh, you know, those old, those old machines in the, in the, uh, in the arcades where you've got the little claw and you pick up the things. So I'm kind of picturing the Western Civ tradition, just kind of plucking up these little, these characters and saying, These, this one's mine, this one's mine, this one's mine. Uh, you know, and, and that fundamentally creates this divide that, that also doesn't exist. Um, as we are, should be aware, you know, Europe and Asia are not fundamentally separate, uh, you know, geographic expressions. They exist within the same landmass. You know, even Africa, of course, is not disconnected from those continents. Um, but what we tend to do is create these very hard lines between East and West. And so I want to give a, a fun example here of how, you know, people didn't necessarily see it that way at this time. And in, in, in terms of, you know, this is our guy and this is your guy, that sort of thing. Um, Ishmael, who was the founder of the Safi dynasty and a pretty fascinating character in his own right, <clears throat> started his career as this kind of millenarian uh, religious radical. Uh, he was ahead of, of essentially this religious movement that was barely even Islamic in some ways in all kinds of kind of heretical aspects. He refers to himself as, as the, the, uh, as Adam at some, in some cases, you know, the first man, <laughs> but, uh, in, in one of his poems, uh, I'm sorry, in his poems, he would, you know, as I suggested, refer to himself, um, as all these different figures. One of the, the, uh, strange aspects of the Safavia kind of, uh, ideology 
was that uh, they believed in reincarnation. So they believed that, you know, certain charismatic figures could be reborn in new bodies. And so in his poems, he would refer to himself essentially as the incarnation of these old figures. And, and often that would be kind of Persian heroes, often pre-Islamic Persian heroes like Feridun and Rastam. These guys are almost, you know, mythical, but kind of historical, but just kind of heroic figures of the past. But he also at times refers to himself as the incarnation of Jesus or the incarnation of Alexander, right? So these figures who have very, very much been uh, assimilated into, uh, stolen by, we might say, the Western tradition, were seen, you know, this is would have been early uh, 16th century, as just as much um, a part of, of the tradition of this kind of radical, uh, emergent, dynastic founder um, when he saw those those figures as as useful to his his legacy and his understanding of himself, but also the fact that he's presenting himself this way in in his poetry suggests that his readership also would have made those connections, also would have seen those figures as as important. So I think that's you know the kind of thing you can do to create that counter story, which takes the east west binary and hopefully um, kind of explodes it. Yeah. So what are you what are you saying, Josh? So so Jesus was not European. Jesus was not European. Very, very light skinned, apparently, because I've seen the pictures. But uh, no, not not European. Uh, you know, and, and right. I, it's just it's just so interesting thinking of kind of these these figures, um, which get, again, so kind of grasped by, by certain traditions. Eurasia is a big place, but it's also a place where people move all the time. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the idea of Alexander, I think I'm fascinated by the fact that there's like Chinese folk stories and Mongol folk stories about Alexander, you know, thousands of, uh, you know, 1500 years after Alexander actually died, um, you know, just kind of suggest the kind of broadness of this, of this world, the bigness of this world, to use a term that's not actually a word, um, that, uh, <laughs> that really helps us see past, you know, see past the way this, this stuff is presented. It's also another example why, why Western Civ is, needs to go away, I think, but, um, yeah. 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 You know what? I like that because what, you know, part of what you're describing here is, you know, what we might term syncretism, you know, particularly where religious identities yeah. are concerned, right? And gosh, you know, it takes me back, Josh, because one of the first books I read, you know, as, as a newly minted PhD in, in U.S. history, one of the first books I read that really turned me on to world history was Jerry Bentley's Old World Encounters. And yes. Bentley was one of the sort of, you know, first sort of generation, right, of, of, academic world historians and uh, who was mm -hmm. like publishing things, eventually a textbook and that sort of thing. Uh, but the thing that so blew me away, you know, was his descriptions of how, you know, the identities of people, religious identities of people, let's say Buddhists, you know, in, in China or something, you know, really followed this, this process of cultural exchange of the migration of, of peoples, or at least the movement of peoples, in that case, merchant peoples, you know, across those, uh, you know, those kind of land bridges of trade and commerce connecting the subcontinent with, uh, you know, those are the Western regions of the Chinese empire or something. And, uh, and how these identities are fluid. And that's what it reminds me of, yes. you know, that, that people borrow and adapt and modify different, you know, elements or facets of a particular belief system or cultural system. You know, for, for all kinds of reasons, you know, uh, but b because they make sense in some basic way or give yes. some kind of 
identity to uh, you know a group of folks. So that's what I'm getting as you talk about this the Safavid, uh, even in the person yeah. of a of an Ishmael, you know, somebody who's very attuned to the power of that kind of syncretic uh, identity. Yeah, and I, I think that idea of fluidity is so important, and and it's important in the sense that you know the the very identities themselves were kind of fluid in the sense that they didn't quite match up with you know, what our sense of what it means to be Christian or Muslim or, you know, to use ethnic terms, Arab or Turk or anything like that, but also that they're fluid, you know, kind of daily. Uh, I was reading about uh, the Ottoman Bazaar, right? The Bazaar in, in you know, the bazaars in, in the Ottoman Empire. And those would be just these, you know, these multilingual, multi-ethnic, multi-religious places where when you went there, the expectation was um, nobody was necessarily going to be speaking the same language as you, um, that in order to communicate, in order to make, you know, exchanges, you would need to slip from this language to that. You would need to, uh, you know, go from, you know, this manner of presentation to another. You would need to go from this form of address to another form of address, right? That if you looked at just the bazaar, you know, and tried to define the Ottoman Empire by the bazaar, by the bazaar, you'd be like, I don't know what to say, say about this place. It doesn't make any sense <laughs> in the way that we should think. We think about, you know, the, the way societies work today. But at the same time, those same people who could go to the bazaar and be these kind of fluid, multilingual um people with you know knowledge of different kind of uh, uh norms and 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 assumptions and and forms of communication they could go back to their own communities and you know living amongst other muslims other christians other jews they would you know cast aside that kind of fluid aspect and they'd become you know kind of more doctrinaire in their islam or their you know ethnic identity or whatever it was um but those things were not seen as somehow um you know, as, as opposed to each other. It was perfectly fine to live in your Jewish community and, you know, speak um, Ladino or, you know, speak Arabic to each other or whatever the case may be, and then go to the bazaar and, and realize, well, I need to use some words of Armenian now because I'm dealing with an Armenian merchant mm -hmm. um, or mm -hmm. that, you know, I need to not use the formal types of address I would use in my own community and use this other one. That wasn't seen as like a problem or something that needed to be... Uh, um, done away with or anything like that. That fluidity kind of existed in the broader sense in the nature of these identities, but also in that kind of daily sense in the ability to shift from culture to culture, language to language. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and, and just to kind of get through life, which is um, something really important to, to, to note. And so kind of broadly speaking, then I want readers to be consistently reminded um, because, you know, my, my idea about textbooks in general, about doing these classes in general, is that you've got to start with what are you trying to get across, right? What's the argument of the lecture? What's the argument of the chapter? And then everything else just exists to provide evidence for that argument. So, you know, I might, I might be writing about the Ottoman, might be writing about the Safid, I might be writing about the Mughal, but what I'm really writing about, um, you know, among other things, is this idea that the forms of identity that would later become fundamental were not necessarily as significant in these earlier periods of time and in the context of which I'm writing. The modern world, of course, becomes defined by the creation of clearly defined categories that help us create then these binaries that I was talking about. But the pre-modern world is far more ambiguous and fluid um, in the way that identities were created and the way people live their identities. So it's useful to remind ourselves, and certainly I want to make this case to the to the readers, that there's nothing internal or inherent about the things that divide us. Instead, those divisions themselves have a history. And so giving examples of these, these moments, these places, these times, 
in which the, the binaries that we come to think of as being so important had far less importance, had far less meaning, or maybe had no meaning, is a useful way of kind of getting that across. That, you know, again, the modern world itself is constructed. And it's constructed in such a way um, that in its construction, it kind of smooths out these uh, more ambiguous and fluid periods of history in which you, one could be Muslim, but that wasn't in the entirety of what you were. It didn't define everything about you. It didn't define everything about your culture. It didn't define everything about your behavior. It was just one part of your identity that was more important in some places, less important in other places, but not the entirety of who you were. Well, you know, I love that, Josh. So, yeah, keep keep rolling. Well, the last one I want to talk about is is one um, that I think is is really really important. I mean, all these are important, but but one that, um, in some ways, is the hardest to 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 deal with, and that's you know addressing the issue that the the European historical experience does not define human experience. We've talked about so much, you know, like the term of medieval, right? Medieval is a is a concept, is an idea is a, a system of, of chronology that comes out of the way European, European history was told. But medieval doesn't have much meaning when talking about Polynesians, for instance, uh, during that same era. Does it really describe or explain anything about China during that period? And, you know, scholars go back and forth and this how useful these terms are, but unquestionably, we're, it's an example of using a term that's relevant for European history that then gets um, applied to all these other histories. And there's so many examples of that where where the kind of uh, progress, we'll say, of European history comes to find the norms of all histories. You know, so, you know, an example of this that I think still comes up so often is that um, uh, textbooks, and including the one I use, will still ask questions like, why didn't the Chinese engage in maritime exploration, Right. So it takes this thing that, that, you know, a few European states began to do at a certain time and then kind of normalizes something that just should happen at some point in one's history, right? <laughs> but there's nothing normal or natural about that process. The European states who engaged in it uh, were doing something that was a very specific reaction to a very particular set of circumstances, right? We, we should understand that, but that often gets, uh, gets uh, distorted by this idea, well, that Europeans did that at some point. Therefore, countries that didn't do it, regions that didn't do it, are somehow lacking. They somehow failed. They somehow let opportunities slip slip by. Or we often see this. There's something about them, right, that made them uh, unlikely to do these things. The Chinese were too inward looking. They were too traditional. They were too conservative, you know, as an example of this. Um, whereas Europeans were curious, were uh, more engaged, uh, were more adventurous or more open to the world or something like that. But again, we got to look past that kind of thing. There's nothing normal and natural about exploration. It's not just a stage of history you should get to at some point. Um, it's a specific thing. So, <clears throat> you know, the, the issue here is that Eurocentrism is something that I think we're all better attuned to now than we used to. And I, I think this is reflected in textbooks, certainly. But I still think that too often the, the, the challenge of Eurocentrism is dealt with simply by talking about Europe a little less, right? Like, so you, your chapters on Europe are maybe still a little longer than the chapters on, on other places, uh, but there's more <laughs> chapters in other places. Like that, that, that's, I think, the most common reaction to it. Um, you know, the, the old uh, chestnut about world history is it's just Western Civ plus China. That's, that's kind of a version <laughs> of that, that as well. 
Um, but, but you know, the, the idea here is, well, in order to be less Eurocentric, we're going to start our textbook with a chapter about China. How about that? Um, I just, I read a textbook mm -hmm. recently and the first chapter was called world history begins in Asia. I'm like, Ooh, let's, let's see what this is about. But it literally just meant that they were starting the world history textbook in China. It, it wasn't making any larger point about, you know, the, the impact of China on the modern world or something like that. It was just literally saying, we are going to begin this textbook in China or in, in Asia, I guess. Um, but then it went right back to the kind of same Eurocentric notions, the same essentializing ideas about China that, that are always there. Um, so I you know guess what that the, reminds the me making, of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It reminds me of the old line, you know, like uh, on a first date, you know, where the, where the guy uh -huh. says to, you know, his date uh, after he's been talking nonstop, you know, about himself, he says, well, enough about me. Uh, what about you? What do you think about yep. me? Right. <laughs> that's, that's great. Yep. Yeah. I mean, and, and so the, the end is like, you're, you're now they're reading about a place they didn't used to read about, but it's still, it's just kind of there, right? It's not really part of the broader narrative, which really just wants to get back to Europe where things are really happening, where important stuff's really going on. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, the other way this plays out is that we take these terms from European history and we use we apply them all these different places. Um, and again, we then use that to, or rather we, it gets used rather to kind of judge these other societies based on whether they kept up with these advancements in Europe or whether they, they didn't, whether they stayed behind. And so an example of that, that I want to talk a little bit about is the example of, of toleration. All right. So toleration um, is this notion that comes from within European historical narratives as something that was achieved by European states, beginning, I guess, with the Dutch Republic in the 17th century. I think that's usually where it starts. And then emerging in other states in the centuries to follow. And so it's often used as kind of historical benchmark, right? That uh, represents this moment when Europeans repudiated religious violence. Um, and, and kind of that becomes this part of that story of, of progress that once, you know, Europe was riven by these sectarian conflicts, but now we have uh, toleration which allows a society like the Dutch Republic, which is, you know, has its own, uh, you know, formal religion, but also allows, for instance, Jews to reside there and live according to their religion um, with autonomy. And so it creates this kind of new, new way of living, which becomes, again, as I was talking about earlier, one of those levels in the video game of history, right? We pass this level called toleration, and now we move on to the next level. Now, scholars often do refer to the Ottoman Empire as being a tolerant empire. But I do want to get into a bit why that term is unsuited to describe in the Ottoman context and why you're using European, tech, uh, um, European terminology to describe non-European places often just assimilates those places into the logic of, of Eurocentrism. A bit. So, um, and, and again, you know, I'm, I'm giving this, ex this description now, but in the, in the chapter itself, I'm going to be very clear about this, that this is this term that's used in uh, the context of European history. And when we talk about the Ottoman Empire, we need to think about it in a, in a way differently from the traditional European way of thinking about toleration, um, which again, undersells or, uh, you know, distorts the way we would think about that Ottoman history. Because one of the striking things about the Ottoman Empire was how different it was or how different it dealt with difference than, for instance, European states and certainly modern nations. Um, this is because in its dealings with its subject people, 
the Ottoman Empire, particularly in its first four centuries, from about 1300 to 1700, really didn't see diversity or difference as a problem to be solved. Right? It wasn't like the European context where the existence of religious diversity became kind of a crisis for centuries and centuries. Uh, the historian Aaron Rodriguez notes that while the Ottoman Empire recognized difference, quote unquote, it lacked any political will to transform the difference into sameness. Difference was a given and accepted as such, and this was a world that recognized and accepted that groups did not necessarily have to share similarities to have a place in the overall arrangement. The Ottoman Empire was specifically designed as a place that was multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-confessional. Um, and the Ottoman Empire, although it you know, was very powerful, uh, it had a fairly centralized state, simply didn't see it as useful, practical, or anyhow, any, in any way part of their ambition to get rid of that difference. In the concept of European history, the tendency is to, to describe the sort of relations between the rulers and the ruled, or the state and society, in terms of quote-unquote persecution, or tolerance, or rights. But none of those terms really describe the Ottoman model, right? So again, when we try to take these terms from European history and apply them to the Ottoman Empire, they, they come up lacking. European societies, particularly from this point um, in the, maybe the 17th century, begin developing the idea of a majority, right? There's a majority population, and that population was the basis of the norms. And then a minority population, or minorities in some cases, made up of those who existed in opposition to those norms. But within the Ottoman Empire, it was difference itself that was the norm. Um, uh, various scholars that I've been reading, you know, have kind of noted the fact that there wasn't a sense, any sense in, in Ottoman writings and Ottoman discussions at, at the elite level of a demographic majority in the empire. There was no sense that this was an empire where there was, you know, X percent were Muslims and they defined everything and everybody else was a, min was a minority. So they simply didn't think of things in the same way as that European model. Now, in those, those majority-minority type of societies, as was being created in Europe, there was tended to be legal systems that either treated minorities as equals under the same universal laws. This is seen as, pro this is, you know, the progressive narrative is that over time, minorities come to achieve equal rights, right? So they're still minorities. They're still not part of, you know, the, the majority population, but they will be treated as equals under universal law. Or in other cases, <clears throat> um, minorities were subject to discrimination or persecution through the denial of legal equality, right? So those are basically what, what happens. Now, neither of those things quite describe reality all that well, because of course, the United States is based on a constitutional system in which there are universal laws that apply to everybody. But as our listeners may be aware of, that doesn't actually describe the reality of, of American history. Uh, for the vast, vast majority of that history and maybe including now. So it's not quite that simple. I just talked about, you know, getting rid of binaries and here I represented, presented this, this new binary. But, you know, just broadly speaking, that's the way European societies, places like the United States, came to see this stuff. In the Ottoman Empire, though, particularly as it, as it relates to the uh, judicial system, the legal system, nothing about justice was universal since each different community was subject to their own distinct judicial systems, all right? So there wasn't a sense, there wasn't an ideal, there wasn't some kind of uh, you know notion that there should be a universal system that applied to all communities at the same time. The idea that, that non-Muslims, for instance, should be uh, judged according to Muslim laws, according to Sharia law, was not seen as something that was normal or, or natural, even for the religious scholars 
at the height of judicial power in the Ottoman Empire. It just, you know, didn't really make sense. Why would somebody who doesn't, is not part of our community be subject to our law? So it was perfectly natural that Jews would be subject to Jewish law, Christians subject to Christian law. So rather than a society within which the ideal was equality within a universal system, for the Ottoman, the ideal was simply fairness. Right? Again, I'm, this is an ideal version of the system. There's all kinds of problems within it, but that's at least the ideal of the system, that people are treated fairly according to the laws that make sense to their community. And what fairness meant essentially was explicitly not treating everyone the same. So here's this notion that fundamentally is in opposition to our idea of, I would say the idea of moderns in general about the centrality of equal rights to our sense of social justice, right? This is not an argument that the contemporary drive for equal rights, by the way, is wrong or misguided. I want to be clear about this. Obviously in our contemporary societies, that is so crucial, right? Is actually giving people equal rights, equal protections under the law. But, um, but the Ottoman system was, was different. The context was different. The history was different. The realities were different. Identities were different. And in that context, the, the, the Ottoman Empire, an, an empire that's trying to rule over a massive territory, including you know innumerable different peoples and, and, and cultures and languages, uh, simply felt that the best way to govern, the pragmatic way of governing, was to provide fairness without trying to impose sameness on top of the population. So this is all a reminder then, right? Stories like this are a reminder. First of all, that um, human history is not a simple story of gradual improvement over time, in which improvement is largely presented as doing the things Europeans did, right? It's not simply enough to just say toleration is something that society should achieve. And once they've achieved it, they've moved along that path of progress in the same manner as, as Europeans. Um, we, you know, stories like this suggest that, um, but even ideas of kind of things getting better or things getting worse, the idea of, of change over time, the, the idea of improvement over time is not actually the best way of thinking about the past, that everything that we can see as, as improvement or progress, you know, comes at, at some cost uh, in, in various ways. So the Ottoman territory, for instance, um, one that encompasses at its height, you know, all of North Africa, most of North Africa, at least, portions of the Arabian Peninsula, the entirety of the Balkans, uh, big portions of uh, all, all of Anatolia, and then reached into at its height, you know, modern Iraq and big portions of the Middle East. You know, at this moment, that area, that region is seen as one of the most volatile regions of the globe, give or take Ukraine at this at this moment. But um, but at its height, the Ottoman Empire from roughly 1400 to 700, a period in which, you know, as I was suggesting, religious differences, sectarian violence was the norm in Europe. The Ottoman Empire um, experienced no large-scale religious conflict, right? So it's, it's a pretty extraordinary thing, and it suggests that, you know, history is not a straight line. History is not just a simple story of things getting better, humans getting more enlightened over time, and that the Ottoman Empire ultimately took a region which today seems uh, like it has all these intractable political, social, cultural problems. The Ottoman Empire successfully ruled over those territories for, uh, again, a huge time frame, 300 years, in a way that kept those sectarian differences um, from uh, erupting into violence. And then I'll, I'll just end here because I think part of, the, part of the issue is that this kind of Eurocentric version of history in which you know, Europe does stuff and then other societies are judged by whether they follow that model or don't follow that model. 
really undermines our ability to empathize with people of the past. Something like tolerance is not intrinsic to any particular society, right? And you know, I just said tolerance is not the best way of describing the Ottoman Empire, but for lack of a better term, I'm just I'm going to use it here. Um, the fact that the Ottoman Empire maintained a set of policies which allowed multiple communities to exist side by side for centuries without uh, outbreaks of massive outbreaks of, of violence doesn't prove that states based on Islam are inherently tolerant. But it certainly does show that states based on Islam are perfectly capable of achieving toleration. By the same, uh, um, you know, in, in the same way, the fact that European states eventually adopted their own systems of tolerance and then eventually adopted, you know, maybe not fully systems of equality under the law doesn't prove that, you know, Western states are inherently more uh, geared towards justice and equality that both these things are, are moments in time. You know, and as we think back to these recent Supreme Court decisions, you know, it's a reminder that what we tend to do in these kind of American progressive models is simply say, you know, well, this was always what we were trying to do, the march of liberty, right? The seeds of progress, the seeds of liberty, even as you said, you know, slaveholders are seen as proto-abolitionists in the American story, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then no society should be seen, should be judged, you know, as its nature based on its best moments. No society should be based on its, its worst moments. History is long and complex. And the more we can see that broad sweep of history, as opposed to choosing certain moments, as in these progressive narratives, and defining the nature of peoples based on those constructive, um, constructed narratives, the more honestly we can see the past. Well, I really enjoyed that, uh, Josh, because among other things, it shows us how you are working through this process, uh, sort of meta-historical process of thinking about the ways we tell the story, the constructs we use, the familiar tropes, and uh, as you pointed out, the binaries. It's, a, it's remarkable how often historical writing and, and thinking falls into you know, a series of, of binaries which as you pointed out, all have something to do with a kind of us versus them orientation. Yeah. I was going to say another one of the, the key binaries, maybe the most basic of all here, right, is past and present. Uh, uh, perfect, yeah. We Look, I mean, you know, uh, philosophers talk about the eternal present, you know, how we live existentially in one ongoing present moment. Now we have memories and so we can recall past events well enough, uh, and uh, in academic terms at least, when we do that on a certain scale, we call that history, the recalling of past yeah. events, but it's always happening, right, in that kind of eternal present, and yet it's remarkable how seldom historians want to acknowledge that, in other words, that their understandings of the past are always grounded in some eternal present. In fact, Sometimes they'll go quite the uh, the opposite direction, right? You know, under the aegis of doing scientific history, a concept, right, that comes out of the 19th century. Yeah. Uh, where you get this notion that, well, in fact, we are standing here in the present, but like scientists investigating any natural phenomenon, you know, are deriving, what, objective 
understandings of an objective past that stands on its own terms, rather like a foreign country separate and apart from us. And I still see that, you know, because look, you know, we're, I get it. We're empirical. We, we want to be, we, we want to be fair. We want to be objective uh, in our understanding of the past. We don't want to simply impose uh, our present uh, understandings of things, impose them on the past willy nilly. You know, that's the sin of presentism, right? You know, which we, you know, we yeah. do like to avoid if possible, but, you know, to the extent that it is possible, we also, I think, have to acknowledge much more often than we do how much our understandings are rooted in the past or in the present. Yes. That is, we create the past in our own image or something, you know, without necessarily uh, copying to that. Let me give you just a good quick example. You know, after World yeah, War definitely. II, uh, as the Cold War dawned, uh, that that other binary of East and West, you know, took on new meaning, communist, non-communist, etc. And you had a generation of historians in the United States, and these were really from the leading graduate programs, the Ivy League programs, uh, many of whom, uh, that is this new generation, many of whom had service in World War II, you know, in the kind of patriotic flush of wartime service now, uh, translated into the Cold War binary of us versus them, of East versus West, of communists mm -hmm. versus non-communists, started writing histories of the United States that were ideologically at least positioned to show that America had always been the defender of the free world, so-called. That was a popular term, right, during yep. the Cold War. So going back to the national origin moment, you know, you said something about taking these sort of banner moments and then what projecting yeah. them onto a future, taking the American Revolution as the moment of what is the moment of national origin, a nation born of liberty, fathered into existence by so-called founding mm -hmm. fathers, whose real commitment was to, you know, the fundamentals of of preserving liberty within a complex political system, ultimately constitutional system, that would give in a kind of utilitarian way the you know the the greatest good for the greatest number, and uh, that that so that was the story because you'd had a generation before the World War you know of historians who were trying to find the contradictions inherent right in the American Revolution, trying to find you know, where maybe moments of naked material interest really eclipsed any sort of, uh, you know, obedience to some hallowed notion like liberty or freedom. In other words, when push came to shove, you know, those we call the founding fathers often looked to their own material interests. That had been this sort of assessment, a more critical assessment of, of the progressive era, the so-called progressive historians of the pre-World War II era. And so, yeah, you bet all these... You know, when Johnny comes marching home from war and writes history about his nation and the flush of wartime victory, you can bet that those those histories will be just about as patriotic and, or those, you know, those recollections of the past will be infused with that kind of patriotism, particularly as they now do battle in the Cold War contents, contests between East and West. But here's the thing. That's what we can see now and looking at those histories, many of which defined the very discipline of U.S. history writing, you know, through the 60s and 70s and even 
into the 80s when I was coming up, you know, in grad school, we read those books. We read Bernard Balin's mm -hmm. Ideological Origin of the United States, or we read, you know, Edmund Morgan's The Stamp Act Crisis, which very much were written in the vein of that kind of progressive teleological triumphant nationalism where, you know, enlightened founding fathers saw, uh, you know, a nation bathed in liberty or something. And to the extent that they were uh, contradicted in that by the fact that these men were often themselves enslavers of people. You know, Thomas Jefferson being the best example, we've talked about many times on this program, you know, they were sort of warmed over with that kind of understanding. Well, they were ahead of their time. They were still of their time, but they were ahead of their time and ultimately planted the seeds, as you say, of freedom to come. So we even have the founding fathers, those who were slave owners to thank for the ultimate abolition of slavery, something like that, right? But the thing is, these historians never acknowledged that they were writing in a very contemporary Cold War vein, inspired yes. in part by their own wartime service. They instead claimed they were writing in purely authentic terms, a dispassionate, objective history that simply laid out the truth of the matter uh, and thus to somehow take issue or depart with it, you were not only, you know, offering mere disagreement, you were somehow, what, you were uh, being unfaithful or almost nearly disloyal to the, the paradigmatic truth of what they had ascertained about who we are as a nation, uh, full of binaries, including uh, that of past and present, us versus them, uh, democracy versus communism, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, where that's left us, and I appreciate you giving me a chance here to unwind on this, where it's left us now in, in an age of, you know, Roe v. Wade being overturned, in an age of, you know, Russian invasion of Ukraine, you know, is, is wondering how it all, how it all went wrong, you know, because when mm -hmm. you have that triumphal narrative, uh, and you go from station to station there, you know, you can sort of, you know, clap your hands together and say, job well done. We solved that problem. The Cold War is over. There won't be any more of those kinds of things or there. We've expanded freedom to include a woman's right to abortion. Now we won't have to face that sort of thing anymore. But when you get this sort of history and retrograde movement, I think both of us would say one of the things we should be reminded of is that we're led astray a bit by those narratives themselves, right? That is, those triumphal narratives that in purely kind of ethnocentric triumphal terms limit or restrict our ability to see a broader history, certainly a broader global history, to see the nature of the constructs we create in light of different historical experiences, which is why I really appreciate you talking about you know, the, this, this piece you're writing for the textbook, you know, on the Turco-Islamic empires, because, you know, for most Americans brought up in that consensus, triumphalist narrative of U.S. history, you know, you might as well be, what, you might as well be describing the history of another solar system or something, you know, something yeah. just outside yeah. the experiential understanding of the typical national narrative that most uh, people in the country are, are raised on. So uh, you're doing a couple things. You're not only opening that history up, 
but you're also reminding us of just how limiting the narratives we have, the stories we tell about ourselves really are. Well, I thank you. And I think, you know, the, the, the biggest thing that, you know, I want to get across, and I think we've been trying to get across in the podcast is that, is that history ultimately shouldn't narrow us, right? The study of history should uh, enliven our sense, embiggen, to use a, this term from The Simpsons, embiggen our sense of, of the past <laughs> of humanity. Uh, and, you know, I, I was, I love this quote from uh, um, Eduardo Galeano, the, the um, Uruguayan writer. He says, we've been lied to. I'm, I'm not quoting from memory here, so it's not quite perfect. He's, he said, we've been lied to. We are much more beautiful than we are told. Um, he's mm -hmm. essentially saying that history has lied to us. The way history has been told has been uh, taken over by a power structure that wants to narrow our sense of, of who we are and who we have been. And, you know, to the best extent possible, I think as historians, we need to break through the, the you know, the kind of funnel of the way history has been told and just kind of allow everything in and, and to show the diversity of the past, to show the diversity of the way things were done, um, which also then can um, enlighten us and, and you know, uh, invigorate our sense of possibility for, for the present and the future as well. Uh, well, I like that a lot, partner, uh, because that's a whole lot better than the guilt trip that usually gets foisted on anyone who says maybe it's time to tell a new story, right? Uh, these, these old yes. story traditions go down without a fight. And, uh, and so changing the story, telling the counter story, you know, from the ground up, I think is, uh, you know, is, is not only a, a noble endeavor, but it's an absolutely necessary one for the times we live. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. This has been fun. As always, we'll be back next month. This has been episode 57, and we'll talk to you soon. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one closing your eyes again. So you don't have to see what's happening. Then now, what's going on in these streets? You can't live by what you see on TV. Stop stuck in a cycle, so we repeat. Stop stuck in a cycle, so we repeat.